0: I'm Nareet Ben. Welcome to Life Deconstructed. Amanda Ganawan was born in Indonesia and grew up there until the age of six, when her family had to abruptly get out of the country and move to Singapore. She followed a passion for design into architecture, which turns out to be a pretty male-dominated world. After working for a major firm, at just 26, she broke away to co-found her own design firm, OWIU, leading massive projects from the U.S. and across Asia. We'll talk about how her unusual childhood shaped her, how she figured out exactly what to do with that creativity, how a side project on Instagram ended up helping her launch her business, and what we can all do in this crazy COVID reality to make our living spaces fit our new lives. Amanda's joining me now from a brief escape from the city in California. It's great to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, I mean, we'll get into how COVID has affected your work and and maybe even the concept of design. But before that, just on a personal level, tell me how, how has this period been for you or how is LA COVID life these days?
1: I think it's good and bad. There are good days, there are bad days. But I think what I've learned is to kind of temper my expectations, um, it's kind of like living in the uncertainties right now and like never knowing what's going to happen and just always being ready to pivot when you have to. Like, I think you have to get used to things that you can't expect. So you, you're going to get sudden wins, sudden losses. And when that happens, you have to move on. Yeah. I think that's the training that COVID has brought to me and I think to everybody else.
0: Yeah, 100%. I feel the same way, especially in terms of expectations, because whether we're aware of it or not, I mean, they're the people who are super planned out, and they're like, this is what this year is about. And there are others who are less, but I think we all carry so many expectations all the time that we don't even notice. And then when you're forced to just say, okay, we got to, like you say, let it go, that's probably a great lesson for life. Hopefully, we can all carry that forward when things eventually go back to normal. Well, I want to hear about, first of all, your life story a little bit before, before design, before everything else, because you have a really interesting upbringing. You were born in Indonesia, raised in Singapore. So tell me just a little bit about sort of how you grew up, like what that space was like.
1: I don't really remember my life in Indonesia very much. I remember it being the kind of childhood that like was probably supposed to be the childhood that you're supposed to have. Free and just Just being a child, running all over the place. And then there was like civil unrest in the country. And so my parents had to make this decision of, okay, what are we going to do? But their work and their whole life was in Indonesia. And so they kind of chose what they thought would be best for the kids. And so they moved me and my sisters to Singapore when we were six. I mean, sorry, when I was six. They were older, obviously. I'm the youngest. And so they moved us um to Singapore to get a better education and it was kind of I don't remember much of my life in Indonesia but I actually remember that moment
0: the transition
1: exactly it was so sudden so basically school stopped in the middle of the week like it was a Wednesday and I woke up like getting ready to go to kindergarten and um they're like oh you don't have school today Oh, wow! Yeah, it was bizarre. So I didn't understand it, but I was a kid. So I was happy, right? So I was like, okay, cool. I get to play with some of my friends. But then like I was watching from the balcony of my second floor, I saw all these like people rioting. And so you kind of could sense as a kid, you can understand that like, there were like a lot of things going on, and it wasn't good. And my parents were constantly anxious, constantly panicky. And then all of a sudden, they were like, Okay, you need to pack your bags. I was a kid. I don't don't know what that means, right? Like, just bring a couple of your things. You're going to Singapore. And we had always gone to Singapore because we have a house there. And we'd always gone there for, like, vacation. And so I thought it was just another vacation. So we packed and then we went there. And all of a sudden, they were like, you're going to start school here. Wow. Yeah, that's how it all happened. And it's pretty crazy because I don't remember much of my life there. But I remember the exact moments that led up to that move. Down to this ride to the airport it it was like I could sense everybody was like tense and everybody was just scared to get stopped you know it was that like
0: risky it sounds like even though you know you were so young and didn't know exactly what was going on it's just enough of one of those formative experiences that it it just gets marked even if you don't realize while it's happening it's just marked for good
1: Exactly. So then I I just started school in Singapore, new friends, new everything. But as a kid, it also made things easier for me in some ways, because I wasn't like that attached to things, right? Right. It, it was just like, oh, okay, a new experience for me. It wasn't like I was craving like to see my friends back home or anything like that. Like the transition just was easier. And I'm pretty thankful for that.
0: If you look back on it now, has that, well, I'm sure it's shaped who you are, but has it shaped who you are and kind of obvious ways to you that transition I mean having gone through that and like you say maybe not getting so attached and being open to change in a way
1: I wouldn't say that part did but the part where my parents had to juggle both work and taking care of us and so I hardly saw them and I was kind of raised by a caretaker and um, in some ways I was kind of raised by like my friends almost And so that part definitely forced me to become very, very independent from a young age. And that definitely shaped me up till now. So being able to just bounce back, like everything that we talked about from the beginning, like like not getting attached to things and outcomes and being upset about the failure, but then also understanding that, okay, this is just part and parcel.
0: Right. And being able to look ahead at the next thing, not too much behind you.
1: Yeah, like believing when things happen, they're a little part of like your entire journey.
0: Yeah, I love that.
1: And so you have to have faith in that, even though sometimes it sucks and it hurts. You just trust in the process and you keep going.
0: Yeah, I really like that, that it's a little part in your journey. I think that's so, so true because we get so involved and bogged down and in whatever moment or even if it's a year i mean certainly this year has been so insane it's hard to kind of see past it but if you really take a bird's eye view and zoom out all these things are one moment really in a lifetime exactly they do take on like a new meaning if you look at it that way and and try to look ahead which is you know i'm sure for a lot of people hard these days when it just feels like there's no light at the end of the tunnel of this pandemic but there is well so when you're growing up there i mean were you always drawn to the creative? Was that like an obvious thing for you when you were younger?
1: I was the kid, the little kid who was like, just always in a corner, kind of like drawing little cartoons and stuff like that. I I definitely always knew that I would end up in the creative field.
0: So you knew, I mean, it wasn't like a hobby, like a lot of us tend to think, okay, well, this can only be a hobby. Like you knew this is something you want to do in your life.
1: I was always a creative kid, I was always drawing, I was always sketching, but it wasn't necessarily tailored to architecture. So it's not like I knew, since I was six, that I wanted to be an architect, it kind of evolved, I wanted to be like a comic designer, in the beginning, and then I wanted to be something else. But then there's a funny story of how I was in second grade, I had been asked for one of the exercises for English classes was to write a journal entry. And so one of the entries was to write about what you wanted to be. I got chosen and I basically stood up and I was like, um, I want to be a real estate developer. And I was in second grade. <laughs> and so my teacher was just like It's like a very
0: adult option for a second grader.
1: Exactly. So she let me finish like my entire journal entry. And then she was like, um, Amanda, do you mind explaining what a real estate developer does in your class? And I did. And I was so logical about it where I was like, I want to be an architect, but I want to design for myself.
0: You were pretty close to the mark at a really young age. (laughs) I'm curious, like overall on creativity, because that's one of the things I think about as well. I mean, my whole life have been sort of divided between the more news academic fields to creativity. And there's so many creative things that I love to do on the side. And Mm -hmm. the question of what form creativity takes And when is it a hobby? When is it more? You know, those are questions I think a lot of us ask overall. But how do you take that interest that you have that creativity and figure out where you want to place it? I mean, post second grade, let's say. (laughs)
1: So information to me always came in like a visual manner. And the way that I expressed it was also through a very visual manner. I I don't want to use the word addiction because it's very strong, but I'm very addicted to solving problems. And I love doing crossword puzzles. I love doing all these things. And so kind of understanding all these things about yourself and then knowing like, what path would I choose such that? My job would not feel, of course, it's going to feel like a job at some points, but like would not feel that much of a job. And that was architecture because it was about solving problems creatively and then processing information and then expressing it all out visually.
0: That's really interesting.
1: I like the idea of impacting something on a grander scale, which is through buildings and through urban design versus Like something smaller, of course, something smaller is great, too. But like I wanted basically architecture to me was like the highest tier of like design because you would be impacting such a large audience. A lot of people would be experiencing your building without even knowing that. And that was something that piqued my interest.
0: I think that's so interesting and helpful also to people who are also not at all in the design fields or architecture, you know, whatever it is, but in figuring out where the right place for you, sort of what your lane is. And so amazing that you kind of have the understanding to do that early on to think, how do I process information? What is my natural way? of connecting to the world of interpreting the world and what kind of things do i like in a more vague sense like solving problems Mm -hmm. and then putting all of those little factors together which are actually such big things because i think so many of us know that if you end up in a field or a job that negates exactly that you know if you're someone like you is in front of excel sheets all day and like you know forced to explain things in data i'm sure that you would not be where you're supposed to be i mean you wouldn't be 1% as happy as you are exactly <laughs> so how did you end up i mean you left singapore if i'm if i'm right correct me if i'm wrong to go to the southern california institute of architecture that's right how did you end up going there and making that move
1: well it was completely by choice like singapore had really great architecture universities but i knew that i wanted to go to this school in particular because um, they were very design-oriented. And that was the kind of skill that I wanted to hone. Singapore is great. Like, it has one of the best education systems, in my opinion, for kids growing up. Of course, it has its shortcomings. It's not a petri dish for creativity. I think it's getting a little bit better. But when I was growing up especially, there was a focus on math and science. It was very disciplined too. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that. I am because coming here to college, I had so much like more than enough knowledge on biology, on chemistry and all of these things. And they made sure that it was drilled into our heads. Yeah. The work was almost like memorization. It was almost military style. I had that all. I, I knew all of those things. So coming to sci which is a place where it works very well if you don't know who you are just yet. So you're trying to build your identity. Now you're free to be who you want to be. And so discover that.
0: That's actually exactly what I'm curious about. I'm sure it's still processing because because design and creativity is a thing that continues forever. But how long did it take you to sort of arrive at your certain style, your aesthetic?
1: I think you got it right when you said that it's constantly growing and it's constantly changing. And like I should have a strong foundation, a strong vision of what I want to do, where I'm going. But I should also be very adaptable. With that said, I I want this idea to constantly evolve as the world keeps evolving. My design philosophy is not independent of the world. Right. Like it's not something that was just created inside my head. It was like an amalgamation of like all these information that I keep taking on, that I keep seeing, that I keep processing, and it keeps adding to all these ideas. And there's so much more than just my education that basically helped me build what I want to build with my current company. It's also going to Japan and some parts of my travels, like seeing things, like experiencing things and then bringing it into the design itself.
0: I want to talk to you in a bit more about that because it's, you know, I can't not think about COVID and how that's going to change all our lives in terms of design and the spaces we live in. But I want to go a little more through your journey because I know you worked for a time I'm not sure how long um at Morphosis a, a leading firm mm-hmm. what was it like I mean going into that world i I mean especially for those who aren't familiar with architecture world you know each each field has its own like space and atmosphere and attitudes and I guess you know dynamics and stuff so what was that experience like
1: I've always looked up to Tom Main like he was um, he was very involved in my school and I've always looked up to his designs and him as a person he's extremely intelligent and he he's one of those people that was probably just like he was just born and he knew exactly what he wanted to do
0: yeah I envy those people that is definitely not me
1: (laughs) you don't need a self-discovery process you already know Like, it was amazing to work under him because I'm a big fan of his work, obviously. But my biggest takeaway from working there was the work ethic. It was so competitive in a sense that, like, everybody knew their roles and there wasn't much of a hierarchy. They were like, okay, we're going to take you in. They're like, we have, like, 50 spots on this ship. We want everybody to be captains. There's nobody who takes on like a heavier responsibility. There's no one who takes on a lighter responsibility. It's just a mix. A partner might have to clean the dishes at some point and also have to speak to a very important client tomorrow. And so will you. And so it's very interchangeable at any point, someone's going to drop some work on you and you have to be alert at all times. So the kind of people that they wanted to hire that they're looking for were people who were really hungry, like they just wanted to do stuff. They wanted to work. They wanted to just contribute.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like a real applicable thing when you're starting your own firm and, and building a team and building your own culture and figuring out what kind of culture you want. So I mean, let's talk about that. So in 2018, you opened up your own architecture and design studio, OWIU. The only way is up. We'll first talk about the name for a second.
1: We were just brainstorming names, and we wanted to come up with a name that was that just represented us and represented what the firm believes in. And we had this idea that constantly, that basically, the work that we want to do is going to constantly evolve. So it's always going to be better than the work that it was before. Does that make sense? Sure. We don't believe in, let's say, getting a project and then doing something that was basically done before, basically replicating something
0: right. And it seems like it's literal and figurative because in building, you build a foundation and then quite literally, the only way is up
1: exactly. <laughs>
0: so, I mean, how long was it until you decided to break away and start your own thing? I mean, where does that where does that courage and confidence come from to say, Okay, I'm going to open up my own studio.
1: It, it wasn't long after. Um, the funny thing is my partner and I, we've always done all these random projects together. Like when we were in school, we would just take part in these random competitions. And so we had taken part in this Evolo competition, like to design furniture. And it was a side thing. So we didn't take it very seriously. We did. We even did it the night before because we were like, oh, crap. Like we signed up for
0: it. Okay. Now we have to do something (laughs) like proper students do it the night before. Yeah.
1: Like people argue that that's actually the best time, right. For creativity. Like you get your best work when you're under that much pressure. Yeah. And so we were under that much pressure 24 hours. You're like, okay, we need to come up with something. Okay, let's sit at our desk and just come up with something right now. So we submitted it and then we didn't even remember it. All of a sudden we got an email saying, oh, okay, you guys got like some prize. And we were like, okay, cool. We like forgot about it. And then all of a sudden someone from Milan Design Fest wrote to us. We didn't know that this picture of our chair has been circulating among the internet. And so all of a sudden someone from Lawn Design Fest was like, Hi, like, you know, we'd love for you to exhibit. And we were like, oh, but that chair is real. <laughs> it's a concept. They're <laughs> like, well, you know, you're open to making it real and exhibiting. Like, you can do it. Like we, we're offering you a space right now. And both me and my partner were very we get along, we have so many differences and so many similarities. But one thing that we get along on is like, if we want something, we want it. It's like nobody tells us no. And so we're like, okay, let's make this happen. And so we had like two months to basically build this chair. We did it and we went to Milan Design Fest and we like just met a lot of people and we just felt like, okay, you know what? Like it's now or never. Why don't we just start our own design studio? We're so young. We're so energetic. How many more years do we have that we can do all these all-nighters? Yeah, And go let's just do it if we fail then we fail but if we succeed then great
0: so let's talk about the nuts and bolts of that i mean i love that story because to say that you had this idea that's on the paper and then someone comes to you and is like oh well you know your idea can actually become a real thing and sort of open that up to you and then this idea on paper ends up leading you to to breaking off and starting your own firm So where do you actually begin? I mean, we, uh, you know, we hear about people saying, okay, I started my own company. I started my own design firm. Amazing. But how does that actually work? Like, where do you even start when, when you guys said, okay, we're going to do this?
1: First of all, it was a lot of research, right? It was a lot of like logistics, technical stuff. And the good thing about us not being from America. And so having to get this visa, which is called the entrepreneur's visa was that they, would not award this to anybody whose business was not substantial, like where they didn't feel like you were gonna make money. And so we actually, we came from like this super design oriented school, had no like background in business whatsoever. And now we had to sit down and do like a 100 page document, just like substantiating why our company is going to succeed we needed letters from like CPAs. We're just projecting where our income is coming from. We needed letters from future employers. Like it was a legit thing. Like we can't smoke through this one. Yeah. So we had to sit down and really do this document. And it was really good for us cuz this was very good practice, right? So we got the help that we needed when we needed it. Like what does all these like business jargon mean? And it was coming up with that document. And then when we came up with it, we started believing in it more and more ourselves.
0: That's a good tip, even if you're not forced to, you know, by immigration authorities to exactly. to kind of put it down to, to manifest it, I guess.
1: Yeah. And it, it's that like discipline, right? It's just lucky for us, we had somebody like on our backs saying like, you're not going to get this if you don't produce this. And so we had to have the discipline to produce this document and be like, okay, where is the money going to come from?
0: And how do you find answers to those things? I mean, did you have enough of a network at that point that also for all the recommendations that you, say you needed those letters and stuff, you could both reach out and rely on some network to support you?
1: Yeah, I think that's the interesting part. And it brings us back to like our first conversation of how like everything that you do is like a small part of like a larger whole, right? Architecture school can be very, it's a very closed environment, because you just spend so much time on your work, and you rarely ever leave the studio. At that point in time, I was like, I'm living in LA, and I've been here for a while. And I need more than just this, I need to see more than just my school every single day. I started doing this whole Instagram thing and then I started kind of like making money off of it too. That's where I started to meet a lot of people. I started to network a lot and I started to meet a lot of people from like certain brands as well, like representatives of brands.
0: Right, because I know you create content from for some big brands also.
1: Yeah, so I was like lucky enough to get all of these opportunities and to be connected to all these people. And I felt like I was ready because I had that network. Yeah, I, I knew I wasn't going to create content for these people forever. At that point, I didn't know what this was for, but I enjoyed it so much that I just kept going with it. And then once I started my own company and I needed the confidence to basically pitch to all these brands, like I needed these contacts, I had them.
0: That's great. Obviously, you've had amazing success on Instagram and you really built something so substantial, but it applies to so many things that if you're doing something that fits or like feeds a need that you have on the side, that even if you don't get, like you said, what the exact purpose is, like it doesn't have to have a specific end game to it. It feeds some kind of need. And then again, if you kind of zoom out, connect the dots, one thing always ends up helping in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So that, I guess, ended up really supporting. And I'm sure it came in really useful when you got off the ground and needed exposure and all that. Yeah. Is there like a toughest moment that stands out in terms of starting the firm? Because I'm sure there's a lot of learning things the hard way or just as you go.
1: Oh yeah, of course. There were a lot of jobs that we didn't get because someone felt like we were too young or too inexperienced. Right. We can't give you the job because it feels like you're inexperienced. But the thing that we need to prove that is experience. That sucked, like not being able to get that. There were also times dealing like business here and business in Asia is completely different.
0: Because you guys are designing in both.
1: Yeah, we're lucky to have had projects in both places. And COVID has kind of helped a lot with that, too, because right now I'm here and my partner is there. And we're kind of amping it up in each country. Another one of it is actually men. There was this incident of a project that we had to give up because it felt like they had ulterior motives.
0: Really? In what what sense?
1: We got the job not through merits, but through basically other things that they want. Got it. Like, that was not something that we wanted, obviously.
0: How do you feel that out? Like, at what point do you say, okay, this is not for us? And also, I mean, that takes quite a bit of courage, I would say, too, to say, even though we're starting out and we really need these jobs to be able to prove ourselves, this is not the way.
1: Yeah, they actually flew us over for like a site visit. And that's kind of when we figured it out that first of all, the way in which they were treating us, it just didn't fly with like our ethics. And so it was something that we were very excited about, but we had to
0: give up. That makes me think of just the overall industry. I mean, I wonder, we all hear so much about Hollywood and and stuff like that in terms of the male-dominated environment and the way the imbalances that have been. And obviously, that's changing now in a very public way. But how is that in architecture? I mean, is that something that you have felt either before branching off on your own or as an independent designer, especially being a woman and young?
1: In Singapore, it's not too bad, but then in certain parts of Asia, it definitely is more chauvinistic. It's sometimes to the point where I'd be in a conversation and I'd have all these great ideas. I know exactly what I need to say, but I know that I have to prepare another set for my partner in case I'm not allowed to speak. Wow. That happens quite a bit. And I try not to get too upset about that. Um, I mean, I try to speak as much as I can, but then sometimes it's absolutely not heard. And when it comes out of his mouth, it's like, wow. Great idea. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing.
0: Something I'm sure a lot of women can identify with. Yeah. Although in your case, it's obviously, you know, it comes from a better place between you and your partner, but still the, the fact that it's not received the same way. Exactly. How did you guys get people to, to notice you, to take you seriously, to hire you? I mean, to really get off the ground in that way and, and maybe defeat self-doubt that comes along the way too.
1: I think it's really just about knowing who we are, knowing what we represent, and just trying to prove that. And I know it sounds very cliche, but that really is what it is. And if you, like, so strongly believe in something, it it comes out. Like, it shows. So as you're talking to people, you're trying so hard just to, like, persuade them. On something that you absolutely believe in. It's not like you're a used car salesman trying to sell something. You speak with conviction, you speak with so much intention. And eventually, you're lucky enough to meet people who would believe you. And that's your first project, and then your second project. And then as more and more people start to see this experience and this track record, your work will prove itself.
0: Yeah, that's great advice is to have a clear vision, because what it implies also is that you should stay true to your vision and not try to each time mold yourself to whoever it is you're trying to sell yourself to.
1: Exactly. But
0: to come sort of clear and focus with this is what I'm doing and why and in something that you believe in. And that comes through, if not to the first one or five or 10 people, then, you know, somebody will. Exactly. You mentioned it a little bit, but how has it been adapting to covid Well, I mean, I guess in in general, first of all, for you guys.
1: It's actually not too bad. It's really about like pivoting. Previously, we wanted to do more restaurants. We wanted to do more bars, et cetera. But now we have to pivot and kind of look to remodels. It's not to say that like our aesthetics is changing. Our design is changing. It's not like we just bring the same principles into basically it's not even a different ballgame. It's just a different type. Of architecture.
0: How would you describe then, I mean, if we look at the future of the industry, because again, this is something for, you don't have to be in design or architecture to have this be relevant because with our lives changing so much, I imagine the design world is also rethinking the spaces we live and work in. So, How do you think that might change for all of us? I mean, what do you imagine our physical spaces looking forward?
1: Especially for residential, I think that um, a lot of people will feel more connected to their homes. It's certain things like previously, they didn't have the bandwidth to think about their homes. Like there could be certain areas in their homes that bothered them, but because they were traveling so much, they were rarely at home. They're always in their offices. They couldn't be bothered to really spend the time to fix that. Yeah. Took a backseat. But now that you're always there, you have to. That um is with regards to residential, but also we actually took part in a competition some Somewhere around July, it's called Archifest, and we designed like a pavilion. And so they were asking to come up with a pavilion that talked about the issues of COVID, right, that basically was relevant to that. And so we sat down in a group and we started thinking about this, like, what do we want? What do we believe in? And like, how do we bring this idea forward? How do we take like the OU philosophy and bring it into COVID? And so we took a stance on that. And we basically believe that as architects, we rethought the idea of like a public space. A lot of people, they have these very slipshod solutions of like, okay, um, right now, because we can't have public spaces anymore, let's just eliminate it. But the thing is, as architects, we're supposed to problem solve. And we believe in design evolving. With things. We're coming
0: right back to the beginning of what you were saying.
1: Exactly. So we wanted to be able to rethink a public space. Like we didn't want to just convert all public spaces into private spaces. And so we racked our brains to kind of just come up with something and explore the idea of porosity. To feel like you're still in a public space, like taking all the things that you love about being in a public space while still making sure that we are socially distant. And so that's how we came up with our pavilion. We very much played with the idea of porosity to ensure that, like, we don't eliminate this idea completely because we shouldn't. Yeah. Public spaces should exist, but now we need a new version of it.
0: Right. And if you eliminate them, then five years, 10 years down the road, you're just going to need to do another dramatic, okay, let's bring them all back instead of adapting as we go, each new reality as it unfolds you've done all these incredible projects in so many different places around the world. Is there one that was it for you so far that you think was either, uh, you know, the most rewarding experience or inspiration or whatever it is that you feel like has really been a moment? They all
1: have an element to them that I carry forward and I just loved so much about. For example, with Biscuit Lofts, that project, we were very, very hands-on. That was the project that we actually got to design every detail and we got to take our time with. Every time I walk into Biscuit loss, like it brings me a sense of like pride, obviously, because this is like our baby. Right. My partner, like he's an architect and another one of our architects like went underneath into the pipes to actually hands on, like do these things to learn about all these things. They can like fix your bathtub if they wanted to right now because they know exactly how it works. <laughs> so. Yeah, that was the project that made us want to focus on craftsmanship because it made all the difference.
0: Do you ever have moments where you you're like, "Oh my god, I can't. I don't know what I'm doing or we can't do this" or you know, those kind of moments maybe after you sign on to your pro- to a project or something that it feels unreachable in a way or something or is or do you kind of always have this clear, "Okay, I know exactly what I'm doing."
1: Like we don't always know what we're doing. But I like believe in our ability to always know what we're doing eventually.
0: To figure it out.
1: Exactly. To figure things out, to solve problems.
0: Has having a partner really helped in that to have someone to sort of bounce off of?
1: Absolutely. I think the whole company, everyone's dynamic is just amazing. And I've been so lucky that we've been able to bounce off ideas off of each other. I don't know if you've ever seen this Adobe like creative test. There's basically like a test that Adobe came up with just to understand your creative style.
0: Oh, I I haven't heard of that, but I'd like to do it.
1: Yeah, you should. You should. It's also very short. So everyone in our team actually took it just for fun. And everyone got different, completely different. And there are only like, what, like six or seven of them. And there are five people in the team and everyone got different ones. Wow. And so it just goes to show that like everybody brings their own expertise to the table And yeah, I've been very lucky that when I'm lost in a certain department, I just have to talk to the group and somebody will come up with like a solution.
0: Yeah. To look outside yourself is okay and and good, especially in problem solving, I imagine. And design, really. Yeah. So before I let you go, I'm I'm curious, I mean, in all the talk about COVID and changing spaces and what you're saying, which is so important is like adapting to this new reality that nobody actually knows at all, like what it's going to look like a year down the line.
1: How,
0: how do you sort of apply your own or some of those design principles in your own home? I mean, are there things you think that are applicable to the, to the non-architects and designers in terms of their homes? Because obviously our space today has never been more important.
1: Now that I'm home a lot, I'm starting to understand how I utilize a space. So for example, I know what my flow is like in the kitchen. I know what my flow is like in the bedroom, like what I want exactly in my bedroom. And so as I'm starting to learn all of these new things about me, I would start to design my home to be tailored to suit that. It's little things like, for example, my kitchen. Like I did like an entire like kitchen revamp because I started cooking a lot and I started understanding what my flow was like when I cooked, where to move the shelving, Even little things like like drawers, understanding like where where each drawer should go such that it's the most convenient for for you, like understanding yourself and understanding how you live in your home and how you move around your home, how you interact with your home and then designing according to that. For example, like skylights. If you're a morning person, you really like the morning light. You would want like as many openings as you want. I mean, you know yourself best and you should try to figure out where your relationship is to your home.
0: Yeah. What makes you feel good and what kind of atmosphere you're looking for? And that's great advice to just think literally because I think a lot of times people maybe think of architecture as like if you look at the more abstract buildings and stuff as something that's kind of to behold, but not as much to actually live in and function in. And for sure, now we have to think of how we actually live in a space. And I'm sure that can be done also, you know, not with a lot of money, but just thinking how even things can be organized or set up in a way that just like flows better with who you are
1: absolutely i belong again to the school of thought that feels like it's very unrealistic to think that you can live a minimal life like it's sometimes it's not for you to have like five white shirts and five pairs of jeans and five pairs of like sneakers and that's it i don't believe that and like my home has to be able to accommodate that
0: Don't apply like random things. I mean, there are certain things we can learn from, like don't be a hoarder maybe, but don't just like apply, you know, any kind of design principle to you because it's like a trendy thing or whatever. Like it has to suit your actual life. Exactly everybody listening, I think, has probably done like a closet reorganization at least a few times in the last year. I know I have, right? I'm like looking for new things I can throw out just for the sake of some kind of catharsis. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Now that you're actually facing it every day.
0: Well, that's great advice. And it's so interesting hearing about your journey and your process. Amanda, thank you so much for taking the time and taking us through it. Well, curious to see what's next in the post-COVID world for you guys.
1: Me too. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks so much for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe and send us your thoughts. Any questions that you want answered or women you want to hear from, write us on Twitter at Narit Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pot. And hold on a sec. Here's a peek at next week's episode. And I promise Patricia Sexton has a life story unlike any other you've heard. After 10 successful years in banking from Tokyo to London to Wall Street, she turned down a huge check and left it all behind to pursue her dream of journalism at a TV station in Mongolia. And I said, look, I've got this option to go off to Mongolia. And he looked at me straight in the eye. This very senior banker from Goldman Sachs was running foreign exchange sales. So like, you kind of don't get to a, a more top of your
1: game in this in this particular industry than that. And Bob said to me, go follow your dream.
0: I'm Naree Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.